Good morning, everybody. Who had, who had a, like the best Christmas gift this year? Somebody, somebody who just had, what? You, what? I got um, um, a new hat and new gloves and some new clothes. Sounds good. Yes. Clothes, man. It's funny how in, um, uh, just a moment. It's funny how when you're a kid, clothes are like, uh, clothes. But then the older you get, I'm like, oh, clothes. I need these. Mary. Olaf. Okay. In the in the is it like inflatable or? Oh. He yeah, the snowman. That that's does sound good. All right. <laughs> oh yeah, because he he brights up. He's like fluorescent Olaf. He's blue. Very good. Yeah. Good movie, huh? <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, well, Advent is done, and uh, while we're still technically uh, actually in the season of Christmas until next Sunday, today I want us to launch back into our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we've called The New Way to Be Human. So the basic concept for this series is that Jesus gave us an authoritative interpretation of the law. Now, this is the first uh, this is the Sunday after Christmas, and, and you all are in church, which means you've probably been to church several times over the past week, so I'm going to assume you came here this morning to play ball, and I'm going to use big theological phrases like authoritative interpretation of the law. So, just an idea of where this sermon's going. What I mean by that is that Jesus has authority over the law. He has authority over what you and I call the Old Testament, and for that matter, he has authority over what you and I call the New Testament. If you like to think of the Bible as a rule book, Jesus has authority over the rules. It's kind of like in baseball. When a pitcher throws the ball to the catcher, and the batter doesn't swing, and then everybody looks to the umpire to call either a ball or a strike. In that moment, it doesn't really matter if the ball was in the strike zone or not. What matters is what the umpire says it was, because the umpire has authority over the call. So Jesus has authority over the call, or better put, authority over the law. The problem with that baseball analogy is, for anyone who's watched any kind of sporting event, umpires and referees are often wrong, and the players have no choice but to accept the call, unless they get the challenge and all that. The good news with Jesus having authority over the law is that his call or his interpretation of the law is always the right one. He has authority over how we live life. See, that's if you like the Bible as a rule book approach, which has its merits and its usefulness, I suppose. But actually, I far prefer the Bible as story approach. In this approach, God is telling the big picture story of creation to new creation, and Jesus is the one driving the narrative. It's like the old Sunday school song, he's got 
the whole world in his hands. So Jesus, he's got the whole story of cosmic existence in his hands. And he's calling us to live out the role that he's designated for us to play. The funky thing is that we often get off script, right? And we start improvising and playing the part as we want to play it rather than how God designed it. He is the author of life itself, and we are called to live into his story. The problem with that approach is that none of us were given an exact script for our lives. So inevitably, we'll need to make choices based on our understanding of our own specific role. This is why evangelicals over the past century or so have emphasized something more than rule following in regards to faith. We've emphasized what we've come to understand as a personal relationship with God in Jesus Christ. When I became a Christian at age 13, I was responding to that invitation, the invitation to live a life with Jesus as the center, playing my part as he designed it with him in my very soul as my Lord and my Savior, my Comforter and my Friend. So this series, The New Way to Be Human, is first and foremost for you, an invitation for you and I to do just that, to live life according to the design of the one who created life. I don't know where you are today spiritually, here on the eve of the 2020s. Maybe for you, living into that invitation means that you need to finally get off the fence and invite Jesus in. Maybe you've lived far too long without him calling the plays, and you're ready to start this new decade with him as Lord of your life. If that describes you, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion, the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper together, which will kind of be a visible step in the, um, of an inward reality of that dedication. And if this day was that special day for you, please come and talk to me afterwards about it. But, but I'm sure that there are others, and I might even say probably most of us in this room, knowing you as I do, who have accepted Christ already, but you're on the right side of the fence, but you've been hesitant, maybe even afraid, to take the next step, the next step into discipleship, the next step into service, the next step into growth. So perhaps for you, you don't want to venture into this new decade without a plan for discipleship. What does that look like? What does discipleship look like? Well, it could look like a lot of different things. But I'd say that those who are serious about their faith can identify at least three specific items. Number one, they can identify time in the day <clears throat> where they're devoting to, that they've devoted to God. At least 15 minutes in a chair reading scripture, praying, or, or reading another kind of faith-centered resource where you are personally growing and praying and spending time with the author of your life. This is a fundamental habit of someone who stays on script. And if you read the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus practiced it often. The second thing is that people who are serious about their faith can identify time in your week that you share your faith with others or share life with others. At New Hope, we call these groups house churches. And I beg you, 
if you are not already in a house church or, or some other small group equivalent, please do not start this new decade without making this a priority in your life. I know that it won't always fit neatly into your schedule. I know that it means that you're going to need to say no to other good things to do it. It's that important. You were not meant to live this life of faith on your own. Iron sharpens iron, and you need others in your life, and other people need you in their life. Better put, you need others in your faith. And the third thing that serious people, serious, those who are serious about their faith can identify as I finish this extremely long-winded sermon introduction is that there should be some sort of kingdom-oriented job that you can point to. Are you involved in a ministry of some sort? As a pastor, I'll be honest in that this is the one I actually feel best about in regards to our church. Many of you, I just look around this room and I know that many of you serve above and beyond in ways that inspire and just astound me. I am so very grateful for the ways in which you've involved, that you're involved in the life of New Hope Community Church. But again, I have to ask, as we approach this new decade, to examine the role that you play here in the life of the church. Our vision as a church is to, is to cultivate a culture of discipleship. So to serve that vision means that we need men and women of God positioned in a variety of different ways. We believe that healthy things grow, so we need folks to serve on our welcome team and hospitality team, welcoming in new folks from the community to be a part of our faith family. We need children's ministry teachers to build into the next generation. We need a worship team to help create a Sunday morning experience that is both deep and wide. We talked about how important house churches are, and that means we need men and women to step up and commit to leading or hosting house churches and small groups. My hope is that we'd see the creation of several new house churches in 2020. And that's just the big ticket items. There are so many different ways that you can serve the kingdom through new hope and, and otherwise. My question is to you this morning, can you name how you're serving? And it's funny that if you're visiting with us today, maybe the thing that I could ask you is, uh, the thing I can encourage you in is to, to go back to your home after you've done this visit and go back to your pastor and ask, how can I be serving this church? Getting back to the actual sermon. The challenge is that when you start devoting yourself to things like devotion and discipleship and service, you start to realize that life happens. Preachers like me can often make you feel inspired or worse, guilty about the things that you're doing or not doing. And then you go home with the intention of making some changes. And then you find that life is right there where you left it. The bills still need to get paid, and so you still need to get up and go to your job, and the kids need to get to the game, and listeners' uh, lunches need to be made, and the customer needs to be served, and your boss doesn't understand, and classes need to be taught, and board meetings, and PTA meetings, and band practice, and scouts, and traffic, and homework, and the next degree, and mortgages, and lawn work, and the dishes, and vacuuming, and we're out of town next weekend, and the car needs repairs, and my parents just need more and more help, and I don't have the time, and now I'm sick, and I all I want to do is lie down, and as Mr. Potter said, 
do I paint an accurate picture or do I exaggerate? Maybe this is where the disciples were at this point in the sermon on the mount. When Jesus had been giving them kind of line after line of how to live this new path of being human. And Jesus has been talking for a while now and they realize that they're starting to get hungry and they start to wonder, well, all this sounds great, Jesus, but we're all not itinerant preachers. Some of us have real lives. The last verse that we looked at before Advent began was Matthew 6, verse 24. You could turn there to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We might respond by saying that we want that to be true, but the world runs on money. And the bills still need to be paid. Be realistic, Jesus. The word translated money in that verse is the Greek word mamonas, which could be translated possessions or that which you treasure. So Jesus isn't saying that money, treasures, or anything else isn't important. They are parts of life. He's saying that God should be at the center of it all. That we should lay up our treasures in heaven. And we should be investing in the things that have eternal consequences. But then he adds this, and this is our text for this morning, Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you uh, anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not erased like like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. I'm sure I don't have to say this, but I'll say right up front, that I do not believe that Jesus' point was be irresponsible. Clearly, Jesus isn't advocating a life of laziness where you walk around with your palms up expecting God to give you the things that you need with no action required on your part. We can go actually to the book of Proverbs to hear this. Proverbs offers some basic elementary level truths 
that would have been understood to Jesus' audience. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6, started in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, it's interesting from a scientific point of view. The ant does indeed have a chief officer, ruler. If you have problems with ants, used to be an exterminator, um, if you have problems with ants, your primary job is to kill the queen. That's why the best pest control products attempt to take material back to the nest in order to do that. But, but to the ancient eyes, what they saw was an ant going about her business, doing the necessary things to maintain life. And that's what the writer of Proverbs is encouraging. There is a fundamental principle of working for your living that has been around since the fall, and Jesus isn't telling us to ignore that. In fact, Jesus is giving us an even more foundational principle than Proverbs is. With his authoritative interpretation of the law, he's bringing us back to this thing that he's been pressing on the whole time during the Sermon on the Mount. With every step along the way in this sermon, Jesus has been reminding us that he wants our hearts. But I have bills to pay, Jesus. He says, I know, of course I know you have bills to pay. I don't want you to stop concerning yourself with the realities of this world. What I want is your heart. He's not telling us to abandon responsibility. He's inviting us to trust in him. God has not only been the author of our life, the one who has sent us out. He's also the one who wants to be with us on the journey every step along the way, and he's the one who will be waiting for us at the finish line. The reason why Jesus calls us to stop worrying is because he's calling us to trust in the only one who can really do anything about tomorrow. This is why we have to introduce an an enormously important word, Wisdom. Wisdom is such a key component to the understanding of business and busyness. True, godly wisdom knows when it's time to get up and go to work in order to make the money that is going to pay the bills. True, godly wisdom knows that there is a proper way to budget your money once you've made it. Wisdom tells us when it's time to sharpen the edges of our craft, to get more skills and education in order to go further in our fields. However, true wisdom also says that you're not doing that stuff because you're anxious about tomorrow. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do today. The center of any sort of godly faith-centered, Jesus-centered wisdom in regards to the realities of this world is trusting that God always was the author of your life and your choices are playing out as a part of his world, not yours. In this light, true godly wisdom 
also knows when it's time to take a break. True godly wisdom knows when it's time to observe a Sabbath. True godly wisdom knows when it's time to ask for help. True godly wisdom knows that you are more precious to God than the birds of the air or the lilies of the field. It knows that the reality is that everything is not going to be okay all the time. The life of faith will not be consistent sunshine and rainbows. There will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be moments when it seems that all hope is lost. But true godly wisdom confesses that much of our pain was actually brought on by ourselves through our own poor and foolish, destructive choices. The good news there is that real wisdom also understands that the God who is telling this story gets to write the next chapter, and ultimately, he gets to write the end. He is the God of redemption. He is the God of reconciliation. He is the God of resurrection. If you hear nothing else this morning, please hear me when I say that there is nothing in your life that is so dark that it cannot be forgiven by God and redeemed for his purposes. Please let me say that again. Please hear me. There is nothing, nothing, nothing in your life that is so dark that it cannot be forgiven by God and redeemed for his purposes. There is no dark corner of your life that is making God anxious. He's not pacing around thinking, oh no, he didn't do that, did he? How am I going to redeem that? He can handle it. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't take it seriously. Certainly not. In fact, it means just the opposite. He takes it so seriously that he went to the cross in order to make sure that sin and death and evil will never have the final word. But he didn't go to the cross because he was stressing over your sin. He went to the cross because true godly wisdom and holiness and righteousness demanded it. You see, when we put down anxiety and fear and instead pick up trust and wisdom, we're not just serving ourselves, we're actually serving others. Jesus says, do not be anxious saying, what do we eat, what do we drink, what do we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You see, even after we embrace trust and wisdom, the truth is that the world is going to keep on spinning and toiling. But when we surrender our agenda and instead seek first God's kingdom, we find not only that we have things in abundance, we also find that we have abundance to give away. The world is going to keep on spinning, worrying about what it doesn't have. But true godly wisdom and trust tells you that everything was already yours. The thing there, though, is, is that the world is going to see how you respond to pain and suffering. When we respond to the painful realities of this world with patience and grace 
and maturity instead of reacting with fear and anxiety that means something to a watching world. And maybe they come to us and, and maybe they say, hey, why aren't you freaking out? How are you keeping your composure? Or better yet, we have such trusted wisdom that we're able to spot another person's anxiety and we've earned their trust and we can step in not with judgment, not with a holier-than-thou attitude, but with gentleness and respect to be a voice of calm peace in the midst of a storm. Imagine how much it serves other people how much it would really serve others if we really did live our lives believing that God was on the throne. Sometimes we're we're quick to scoff at the world for being those people who don't understand God like I do. I would argue that if you really understood God, you'd understand that God loves them far more than you do and desires that they live a life of trust and wisdom, not one of anxiety or fear. So our witness can be used by God as a powerful tool if we would only surrender our sarcasm. In all of this, Jesus says that the grand solution to the problem is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, we're going to take communion in a few moments. And while we do, I want to encourage you to do some business with God this morning. Is there anything that you want to tell him before you come to the table? Is there anything you want to bring with you to the table to talk with him there? Is there anything you want to resolve before entering into this new decade Is there a next step that maybe you've been hesitant to take? Is there a step of faith faith that you've never really felt welcome or invited to take? I'm here today to invite you, invite you to take that next step. Resolve in His strength, not yours, to take that next step or even that bold leap in faith. Maybe, Maybe it's just taking a bulletin and circling the house church that you'd like to attend in the new year. Maybe it's writing down the name of a person that you'd like to take out for a cup of coffee and talk about real-life things together. Maybe it's jotting down a ministry that you'd like to learn more about or, or a cause that you want to learn more about. I don't know what it is for you, but what I know is that Jesus is asking us all to seek first his kingdom. And if you're unsure of what that means for you specifically, I think the best thing to do is to ask him. And one of the best places to do that is the Lord's table. Our communion table at New Hope is open to all who call Jesus Lord. If you're not there yet, you need to know that you are welcome here at New Hope and that we love you. Our desire is for New Hope to be a place where you can come asking good questions, wrestling with doubts and hesitations. Please don't feel obligated to participate. But if you do worship Jesus as King, 
You need to know that communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted, baptism being the other one. While communion is a tradition that sustains our faith, baptism proclaims it. So if you find yourself coming forward for communion and you haven't yet been baptized, that's okay, but I'd encourage you to come to me later and discuss baptism. In fact, that might actually be that next step that God is calling some of you to take. For now, I'd invite all of us to stand and read together as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, And was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.